This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 26, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Public sector unions threaten to crowd out other state priorities. Unlike private sector unions, those in the public sector don't have to worry as much that their benefactors will go out of business. Governments, after all, retain the power to tax. At a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing on March 31st, author Armand Tiblo detailed the real-world costs of public sector unions. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I've been told it's good to start with something that gets your attention. How's this? The topic we're discussing today, public unionism and its consequences, is very likely to be the most important domestic economic issue of the next decade. If wage demands and pension and health benefits of unionized public employees are not derailed from their current path, public unionism by itself will more than likely bankrupt most of the states and probably the nation as a whole even before Social Security, the new health care entitlements, cap and trade can get around to it. The engine behind this is what I called in my uh, Cato article, political rent-seeking. And it's important for us to understand its relationship to the growth of public employee unionism and to reckon with its consequences. It is the elephant standing here in the elevator with us, and I think that it's time that we acknowledge it. Last Friday's Wall Street Journal lead editorial was called Government Pay Boom. It notes that public employees are in salaries that average 28% higher than private workers and that their benefits are around 70% higher, with the benefit gap accounted for entirely by unionized public employees, non-unionized public employees having about the same benefits as private workers do. The, editorials ha- the editorial has examples of public employee excesses. There are 3,000 retired teachers in Orange County, California alone, 3,000, collecting $100,000 or more per year in retirement benefits that will continue adjusted for inflation for their entire natural lives and those of their spouses. In Ohio, there are 15,857 faculty and staff members now receiving a total of $741 million a year in pension benefits and each and every one of them, each and every one of the 15,857 is also still working for the system in a full-time job, often the same job that he or she retired from. These folks are making upwards of $200,000 a year without the need to work overtime. Well, lucky them, you might say. And don't you wish you could be in their place? Don't you wish you could have the same deal? If you happen to be a unionized public employee anywhere, the problem is that you may soon have that same deal. But the problem is not yours, it's ours. The dystopian aspects of public largesse, of which these examples are representative, is that government pension systems driven by union demands are already, at this moment, underfunded by $3.2 trillion. Lord, how we love to kick around these big numbers. What can that possibly mean? That's $27,000 for every household in the United States. Illinois is out there actually issuing bonds right now, three and a half billion dollars of them, to meet this year's mandatory annual contributions to worker retirement programs. Programs whose underfunded liabilities in that state already exceed a total of 85 billion dollars. 
about three years worth of the state's entire tax revenues. Will those bonds ever be redeemed, do you think? The situation is worse in New Jersey. It's worse still in New York. It's even worse in California. And as I'm about to explain to you, this is all going to get increasingly worse across the board until the country's economy literally explodes, probably sometime within the next 10 years. The culprit is public unionism and public rent-seeking, political rent-seeking. That's the elephant. That's the elephant standing right here with us. Do I have your attention yet? Perhaps you're convinced that I'm chicken little and that the sky is not really falling. But let me take you through the history of it so maybe you'll understand why I'm so concerned. I want you to see the nature of unionism and its relationship to economic rents and how this differs in public employment and the likely consequences of that. I only have time for a very broad brush treatment, uh, but this is all laid out properly nuanced uh, in my article in the Cato Journal that I hope you have a copy of and that you'll find time to read. <clears throat> First, you have to understand why it is that unions exist. They exist exclusively for the purpose of seizing for themselves and their members a larger piece of the economic pie than could be achieved or sustained through free market operations. That is, seizing more or even all of the economic rents of the system. Now, what are these economic rents? Any economic system that is not one of pure and perfect competition will produce economic rents. These are the unearned excesses uh, that would not exist in a perfectly competitive system. They're profits generated by fooling the public into buying your products, eh? Or profits that come from inventing a better mousetrap but not sharing the secrets with others. But most important, <coughs> economic rents are the extra profits that come from producing and selling any product say flea collars or 200,000 ton cruise ships, more efficiently and better than others can do it until the others catch on and catch up. These economic rents might logically be supposed to a sheet to the entrepreneur, but they could lie with any of the factors of production, with capital, with management, with labor, even support services. In private enterprises, they're variable over time and circumstance, and within any organized unit, they are a zero-sum game. If more economic rent goes to capital, less is available for management or labor. Enter the unions. Seeking a greater share of the economic rents of enterprise, they want more of it, not because they created it, although they may have participated, but because it's there for the possible taking. I know of no other non-criminal organization so baldly oriented toward self-fulfillment as labor unions. It may be undiplomatic to say so, but plundering the economic system for personal gain is what unions do. Now, you probably know the essentials of labor union history in the United States, how unions struggled before managing to elicit ideological support from the progressive movement, and then with the New Deal achieved active government support for their rent sharing, such that government policy became increasingly difficult to differentiate from union wants. So I won't belabor them here. Again, you can see my article for details. How government support for union rent sharing is bought and what the societal costs of practicing uh, that purchase might be were put forth by Gordon Tulloch in an interesting and perhaps arguable theory about government rent seeking. But the outcome is historical. Unions did indeed 
by the hearts and help of government. We know this not only from the laws and administrative decisions on the books, but also because between the start of the New Deal and about the late 1950s, unionism, newly empowered by government to win most contests with private employers, rose from around 20% of the workforce to well over 50%, and in some industries like construction or coal mining into the high 60s. But something happened after about 1958 so that, uh, or so, that, that caused unionism to begin its decline then, to where today unions represent less than 10%, less than 10% of the private productive workforce. Some might point to the Taft-Hartley Act, but that was essentially toothless. Now, what happened is that unions had by then already become so successful at grabbing the economic rents of the private productive system that the system not only ran out of what was available to share with them, in some cases, it ran out of the possibility of raising more. Unions may have been able to level the playing field among competitors in, for example, the automobile industry by unionizing all of the major players and driving up their costs in lockstep, but it could not demand excessive wages at Toyota or Mitsubishi. Companies like U.S. Steel and General Motors began to be unable to generate any economic excesses in their markets, despite the fact that they had protectionist tariffs and a huge head start over worldwide competitors. So that our large unionized companies, and even some whole industries like coal mining, shipbuilding, or garment working, like maritime industries or railroads or steel making, began to decline, taking their unions with them. Nevertheless, despite this precipitous decline, over the past couple of years, union membership has actually been growing. Now, how can that be? Unions discovered the ultimate honeypot in public employment, starting in the early 1960s, when unionization first became politically encouraged by JFK. The need for unions to protect the sensibilities of private servants, uh, of uh, public servants, is hard to reconcile with the claims made for the need for unions in earlier eras when it was uh, alleged to be a necessary foil to the plutocrats and the grasping capitalists who were said to have dominated the industry then. Indeed, public employees were already well protected by civil service regulations, already had elaborate seniority rules for advancement, essentially lifelong job security, superior or even extra special fringe benefits, more vacation time than most, superb working conditions, etc. all given in exchange for what were supposed to be somewhat anemic wages. Both the putative benefits of unions and their organizing tools, the strike and the uh, work stoppages, were generally inapplicable in public employment. Nevertheless, public unionism grew, and as of now, more than two-thirds of state and local employees are members of unions. Significantly, there are none of the limits to public union demands that eventually overtook private unions. There are few motivations for government employers to try to thwart demands from their public employees. What would be the point? Unlike in the private sector, there's no bottom line to maintain, no competing claims for capital or management, no worry about cheaper competition. Government has no competitors, or by competing demands from other sectors. Furthermore, in the public sector, economic rents are not a zero-sum game. This is why political rent sharing is different in buying it, unions have bought government's unique ability to assign to itself more economic rent through taxation, inflation, or deficit spending. So the size of the union's rent-sharing pie 
is almost infinitely expendable. The operative word is almost. Direct and indirect application of unions' political rent sharing is already placing strains in the public sector operations of most states and municipalities of the nation and have impacted the federal, on the federal level as well, not only because some federal employees are unionized, but also because the federal government is, after all, the ultimate guarantor of failing states in the same way that the EU is the fiscal guarantor of the central banks of Greece and Portugal. More and more states will shortly be trudging down the line to functional bankruptcy due to political rent sharing, and the federal government may follow them down that rat hole. Because it's unlikely that the political courage necessary to destroy the public unions will arise before the approaching cataclysm is well advanced, I predict painful times ahead for the nation. Do I have any particulars for you to work on? Unfortunately, no. I spent most of my adult career trying to get something reasonable done about an easy problem, the mess that's the Davis-Bacon Act, blisteringly outmoded, demonstrably idiotic in application. But I've made only tiny progress, a couple of meaningless modifications to it during years of Republican administration and Congresses. This public rent-seeking is a much bigger problem, and it will take a concerted effort by all of us interested in saving the future of the nation. I feel certain that if we don't get together and find some way to do that very shortly, the elephant here in the elevator that we're still trying to disregard may well sit all over us. Thank you. Armand Tiblo is author of the new Cato Journal article, Unions, the Rule of Law and Political Rent Seeking, available for download at Cato.org.